Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we're beginning a new mini-series we're calling Honest Questions People Ask, in which we'll be taking a look at some of the serious questions that people asked, both of Jesus and to Jesus. This week, Pastor Tim will help us work through the question, who is the greatest? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Uh, if you have a Bible, let's uh, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Um, if you're joining us, let me catch you up a l- real quick. Uh, so we have taken 2022 as a church, and we have been working line by line, story by story, through the Gospel of Matthew we are uh, now in chapter 18, so that's taken us nine months, uh, and we are uh, hopefully going to finish by the end of the year, um, but we, our hope was to, to spend a year with Jesus and to see what is it we can learn um, about our world if we actually look at and just kind of walk through the life of Jesus, and we've been seeing lots of things. So um, as, you, as we've moved kind of line by line, story by story, section by section, what we've also noticed is there's like these movements within Matthew. There's like a moment, and then it stops, and there's another moment uh, and so we've kind of bucketed up these movements, and we've kind of created these micro-series within the macro-series of Matthew. Uh, today, I say that because today we're going to start the next micro-series. Um, we're calling this one Honest Questions People Ask, because what you discover in this next section is there's a number of questions that, it's like the heat is going to get turned up on Jesus' life. Um, the religious leaders, the skeptics, the cynics are going to begin asking some really pointed, some really hard questions to Jesus, and Jesus is going to respond with his own questions. And so what we thought would be a helpful way of transitioning through this next section of chapters is by exploring week after week the questions that get asked of Jesus or by Jesus. Uh, Now, the question we're going to look at this morning is the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's the question. Here's the story that that question sits in. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So that's the question. Who is the greatest? And Jesus' response is children. Not just children, little children. Uh, And then there's a whole sermon there, right? Like there's a whole sermon we could preach there. um, A sermon I have preached there about children. And what is it about children that we find, like what that maybe Jesus would say, that's why why, uh, children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And um, there's a whole sermon that we could preach about how to be childlike without being childish, right? That's an important sermon. Um, And we could talk about the attributes of kids. Kids are naturally curious. Kids are naturally open. Kids are naturally a little more extroverted. Amen. Amen. Um, Kids, I mean, kids were naturally, uh, they're naturally evangelists. When they find something they're excited about, they'll tell everybody the thing they're excited about. Uh, And so maybe Jesus is getting at that stuff. Um, Kids naturally have faith, right? Kids believe things that uh, maybe the evidence would point against, but they believe it. Kids, every kid is an artist. 
right? They have to grow up to, like, to, to learn, like, oh, no, artists paint inside the lines. And then they discover, oh, maybe I'm not an artist. But you ask a kid, and they're going to say, I'm an artist. Uh, every kid is a musician. They, we have to teach a kid that you have to sing on key and on pitch and all those things. Kids, by nature, they look at themselves and they say, I can sing. Uh, kids, by nature, are, they, they dance. They're not afraid of how they look when they dance, right? We have to grow up and then... You get invited to a wedding and you watch that scene from Hitch five times where they kind of teach them the dance move. I'm talking about, like, you got to grow up to see, like, okay, I don't know, I'm uncomfortable doing this thing. So maybe what Jesus is getting at in this whole passage is when he says become like children is all of those things that if we were to put a child here and say, what is it about this kid that's so lovable and so valuable? Uh, maybe that's what Jesus is getting at. Okay, there's a whole sermon there. We're not going to go after that sermon um, we tend to read passages in that way, right? We tend to read the Bible and we say, well, what would he must have been saying? Um, but what, one of the things we like to do as a church is to ask the question behind that question, which is not just what do we love about children, but why would Jesus in his world choose children as the example of saying, if you want to know who the greatest in, the, in God's ordering of the world, kingdom of heaven, you want to know who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is, look to little children. Are there any clues in what Jesus says that will help us understand, here's what Jesus must have meant? Now, um, we're in week one of our micro-series. The way week one of a micro-series works here is uh, we tend to go deep. Um, we believe that when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, the way we love God with our mind is through thinking. And so week one tends to be, um, I, I want to unpack the passage, but I also, uh, it's not just about what the Bible says, but how do we approach it? How do we read this book? Um, and so I want to, um, there was, a, there was a, a teacher of mine that used a metaphor once that I found really helpful. He talks about how it's possible that there's some stories that we read so often and we get so familiar with those stories that we actually can miss out on the, the punch of the story. We miss out on the point of the story because the words become so familiar. He refers to this as the lullaby effect. Uh, so, so think of like the most famous lullaby Rock up by baby in a treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bob breaks, the cradle will fall. And down comes baby, cradle and all. Like We sing these words to our kids because it's a melody and it's words. But then you actually hear the words. And there's a bunch of questions that if you actually pay attention to the words, you should be asking. Who put the baby in a treetop? <laughs> when the, did somebody call 911? Did somebody call CPS? Right? Like you have all these like questions if you ask the question behind the question. Uh, the way I like to think of it um, is, so another way to get at this is by playing a game that I like to call Find the Elephant. Here's how that game works. Most Bible passages have an elephant in the room type problem in them. The more familiar you are with the passage, or maybe the longer you've sat in church, the less likely you're going to be able to see the elephant because you've heard the story too many times. So you actually have to pretend as though you're hearing it for the first time or you have to pretend you're trying to explain the story to your friend who's a skeptic. But if you can find the elephant, and we do this a lot here, um, if you can find the elephant, the problem in the text, often the problem in the text is a secret to understanding the whole passage at a deeper level. If you can find the problem, uh, the, the problem actually becomes the solution to the passage in many, many ways. Does that, does that make sense? 
So you gotta find the elephant. We do this most weeks. We look for the elephant. Um, if we can name the elephant, then we can ask some questions about the elephant. Why? By the way, also a thing to be looking for when you play this game is, is there any major problem, if you read the passage, that the audience just doesn't seem to worry about? The, the, the people in the story, just they're not worried about it. Um, or they respond in a way that we shouldn't expect them to respond. So for instance, last week we did this with uh, Jesus was walking on the water. And remember, we're like, nobody's like Jesus, cool party trick, right? They all see Jesus walking on the water, and immediately the people in the story begin worshiping him. That's the first time that the disciples worship Jesus. And we said, well, why? That's the elephant. We found the elephant. Why? And uh, if you dig into the passage, what you discover is there's a number of Old Testament passages that say only God walks on the waters. So when they know, they know their book. And so when they see Jesus walking on the waters, they know what Jesus is saying. And their response then is, he's God. We have to worship him. Okay, so you got to find the elephant, ask the questions, look for what do they not seem to be worried about? And now we have, okay, there's more going on behind the story. Some like breakthrough can happen. Okay, make sense? We're going to play the game this morning. Uh, the question about who is the greatest falls in the middle. So we read just the passage, but that passage falls between two other stories. Matthew links these three stories. So if we take the stories together and ask the question, where are the elephants in each of these three stories? Let's look at the story right after this story and see if you can find the elephant. Okay, so we're going to play the game. Find the elephant. When people say, what did you do in church today? They say, I'm not quite sure. We looked for elephants. Find the elephant. Uh, uh, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, remember, this is after Jesus has taken a child and said, if, so the child's with Jesus in the story. Those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, before we play the game, let's just get our bearings on the story, okay? Wild story. Let's get our bearings. This story takes place in a city called Capernaum, Jesus' hometown. Uh, Capernaum is right along the Sea of Galilee. This is Capernaum, the, the Tel Capernaum. We've got the ruins. Um, there's more underground that we haven't excavated, but this is what we have excavated of the ruins. Now, uh, Sea of Galilee, city of Capernaum. So when Jesus says jump in the sea, you can see the sea. He can point to the sea. What else you should need to know about Capernaum for this story is Capernaum has become one of, at this point in history, Capernaum has become one of the largest manufacturers of millstones. Uh, millstones look like this. It's an olive press. You put a long stick in it and you would pull it. Um, the reason Capernaum got really big in, in producing millstones, we've actually found millstones in Rome from Capernaum. The reason they were so good at it was because in Capernaum you have this volcanic rock known as basalt. It's both hard and porous to crush the olives. When you're crushing olives, not that you care, but when you're crushing olives, you want to crush the flesh of the olive, but not the pit of the olive. If you crush the pit of the olive, you've got your olive oil is bitter. 
But if you can crush the flesh of the olive, they'll then take it, put it in like a burlap sack. They'll squeeze it for the oil. They'll do a second press, extra virgin oil. So, so you press olives, they become famous for it. So Jesus, you picture the moment, Jesus, who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? Jesus says, get this child. If one of you causes one of these to stumble, you can take that and you can jump in that, right? It's a picture Jesus is using from his culture. You got to understand the context um, and the picture comes to life. I don't think that's the elephant though. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe there's an elephant there, but I don't think that's the elephant. What's the elephant in the story as we read the story? What is the elephant? What's the weird thing? It's a problem. What do we do with this? How about, are we shy today? Okay, it's okay. I'm shy too. Um, how about this for the elephant? If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it away. Tell me that's not a, uh, a relatively gruesome, weird detail in the story. Especially because remember Jesus' audience. This is his children's sermon. <laughs> Right? He's calling children to him. This is the children's sermon. It's okay to say, okay, Jesus, that's an odd children's sermon. By you naming that that's a weird sermon, you found the elephant. Now you got the work to do. Okay? So the more we're like too polite with the Bible, the more we're too polite with we can't dare ask the question because that's not appropriate, the, we miss it. We miss the elephant. The elephant is Jesus says, cut your hand off, cut your foot off. Now that's a problem. You know it's a problem. In fact, uh, there are people that have taken this passage literally. And um, they have actually sacrificed limbs and gouged. We've had people in our world that have done this. And I don't mean to, uh, no offense to their sacrifice. Many of them are very, very sincere Christians. I think they miss the point of the passage. I think they miss it. Um, I, to go further, I think most logical people see the problem in the passage. Okay, so Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. It's better to lose an eye than to like be thrown into the fires of hell. Okay, so Gouge out your eye. How, why, why would your eye cause you to sin? Maybe you lusted, right? You saw something, you lusted. You gouge out your eye. Now you're not lusting anymore? Do blind people not lust? You see the problem, right? Like, blind people can lust. Your eye, all of us know, most logical people know that lust is a heart issue. It's not an eye issue. It's a heart issue. Your heart's what causes you to lust. So why does Jesus say this? And more than this, why does Jesus say this twice? This isn't the first time Jesus says this exact same thing. Uh, Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. And why is it both audiences, neither of them, they just roll with it. They're like, of course Jesus is right there. Neither audience is like, what are you talking about? Your, your eyes don't cause you to sin. Your heart causes you to sin. Why do they just roll with it? What do they know that we don't know? Now you got your elephant. Okay, ah, that's the elephant. Okay, now to do the work. Why is Jesus recycling his sermon? Why does Jesus, why is this a kid? What if I were to tell you that there were two famous kids stories from our Old Testament that Jesus is almost certainly tying together to make a bigger point? Two kids sermons, kids stories. Probably not gruesome. Kids, in fact, these are two kids stories we still tell. Does anybody know a story in the Old Testament, about a person whose eyes continue to cause them to sin. In fact, the language of that story is this man saw, he had to have, and so he, did, he, he took it. Anybody know a story about a man whose eyes caused him to sin again and again and again, 
And this man wants something, so he'll take it, which leads to all kinds of violence because he'll stop at nothing. And the reason there's lots of violence and he can stop at nothing and nobody stops him is because this particular man is really, really strong. Anybody know the story? Until, of course, his eyes get gouged out uh, after he kind of gives up his secret, his eyes get gouged out. And it's in the moment when his eyes get gouged out that the, for the first time in the story, the strong, great man actually is strong and great in the eyes of God. God rewards his strength. What story is this? Samson, you know the story. If your eye causes you to sin, it's better to lose your eye, Samson, than for you to continue your life the way you're living your life. God rewards Samson when Samson humbles himself. Now, did he have to lose his eyes for that? No, but he did have to be humbled. So is the story of why does Jesus choose kids have something to do with humility, being made low? Jesus actually says these kids are made low. Okay, first one. Second story, Jesus doesn't just say eyes. He also talks about cutting off your hands and feet. It's just too weird. It's too random of a detail to be random. What's the detail about cutting off? It's another kid's story. It's a gruesome kid's story, but it's a kid's story. Uh, the kid's story, at least for, for kids of his days, a little more obscure to us. The story goes like this. There are two men. The king, the first king of Israel, is named Saul. He's just been killed. There are two men who want David to be the next king. So these two men find Saul's sons, and they kill him. They then come back to Saul with the guy's and they come back to Saul with their heads, and they, or to David with their heads, and they say, look it, we got, we got them. We got rid of them. And in order to learn their lesson, they lose their hands and their feet. Gruesome story, but it was a kid's story in Jesus' day. Why? Because David is the greatest king of Israel, and the very next story is David getting crowned king. So this story precedes that story. Both stories seem to be stories of strong, powerful people being made low. Now, there's lots of other elephants in those stories. We're not going to camp out on them. But do you see why Jesus might link these two stories? Is this thing about humility? By the way, that story is in 2 Samuel 4. PG-13. Okay. Most of the Bible, by the way, PG-13. Every once in a while, I'll meet a very sincere Christian who's like, I bought my six-year-old their first Bible. They just learned how to read. And I'm like, okay, let's sit down. There's a handful of passages really quickly in there. Um, One about a lady named Dinah. It's going to come up really quick. You want to be careful with little kids. Okay, so that's just true of the Bible. It's a a powerful book, but it's got a lot of adult stuff. Now, okay, that's the first elephant. Let's play the second round of Find the Elephant. Matthew 17, verse 24. This is the story that happens before the story. So we've got the story that we looked at, the story that happens after. Maybe that's about humility. Now let's look at the story that happens before the story of Jesus getting asked the question, who is the greatest? Find the elephant. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yeah, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then children are exempt, Jesus said to them. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line. Take the first first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it, 
Give it for my tax and for yours. Elephant feels obvious. Uh, Let's just get our bearings in the story again. They come to Jesus. They want to know, does your rabbi pay the temple tax? That's their question. They want to catch Jesus. Peter says, yeah, he does. He then goes to Jesus and he's like, you do, don't you? And Jesus responds with, well, I, I don't have to. It's actually really clever what Jesus says. He says, I don't have to because uh, the temple tax is about my father and I'm his son. And do the sons have to pay the tax of the king? He's making a statement on who he is here. But you know what? To, to not cause issues, go fishing. You'll find uh, by the way, the temple tax uh, that they're referring to is Exodus 30. Look it up. Exodus 30 is the temple tax applies to any Jewish male older than 20. Also notice in the story, he says to Peter, pay mine and yours. What does that tell us about the rest of the disciples? They're probably younger than 20, right? They're probably younger than 20. Peter's probably the only one who's older than 20. We made that case a while back. Pay mine and yours. Uh, and then he says, go fishing. You'll find in the fish's mouth the exact amount of money you need for the temple tax. What's the elephant? Anybody fish here? <laughs> Anybody find random things inside? Like, what's the elephant? The ele- Jesus says, go fishing. Find the coin. It'll be the exact amount of coin. And they just kind of roll with it. Like, nobody's like, that's weird, Jesus. I don't, like, no, like, we, and then we read it later as good Christians, and we're like, ah, that's just Jesus doing weird Jesus stuff. But, but you have to ask the question, why? Why is Jesus doing the weird stuff here? What's the point of the elephant? If we can figure out the elephant, we can figure out the secret of the passage. I read this passage. I reread this passage. I reread it again. I looked up commentaries. I looked up. Uh, old commentaries. I looked up new commentaries. I called friends. I called a friend of mine who's Jewish, doesn't believe in Jesus, but he tends to know the, the Old Testament really much better than I do. I'm like, do you know the story? Uh, then I, um, then I, uh, I, so after calling some friends and asking friends, other pastors, asking them, I then went and looked up every single time the word fish shows up in the Bible. I wanted to figure out the story. As far as I know, I don't have an answer. I don't know. Uh, the most, the, like, nobody knows. The, as far as I can tell, nobody knows why Jesus does this moment. The, the best theory, the leading theory, is that Jesus is just being playful here. I don't buy it. I think that, that I, it just feels like that's, uh, this is all just too random to be random. It's too random. My top two theories are, here's my top two theories. I'll give them quick. My top two theory is theory number one, it's cultural. Uh, there's something that Jesus is, that's happening in the world around Jesus that he's making comments on. There was two stories that predate Jesus uh, about fish with money in their mouth. One by a philosopher, a Greek philosopher named Herodotus. Here's Herodotus in Herodotus 3.42. Uh, Herodotus tells the story of a fisherman who goes out fishing. He catches fish. He decides, I could make a lot of money selling my fish in the market, but instead I am going to give these fish to this military general named Polycrates. I'm going to give it to him, and I guess I'll go hungry tonight. Polycrates gets the fish. He cuts it open. He sees inside a ring. He decides that because you gave me your fish, you will, your life will be spared. Random story, but money in mouth. I'm not convinced that's it, but it could be it. 
Second story comes out of the Talmud, a collection of Jewish writings. Story goes, stories of uh, rabbis, mostly. Um, and the story goes that there was a man named Yosef. Joseph. Yosef decided one day that he, uh, he was going to... Yosef, according to the story, loved the Sabbath, and he was not going to work on the Sabbath. There was another man, uh, the rabbi says, a Gentile. I'm a Gentile. I'm offended. Um, but a Gentile. Uh, a Gentile decides, I'm going to make lots of money on the Sabbath. You're going to stop working. I'll keep working. I'll, come, I'll become rich. And then he does, because he works on the day nobody else works. He gets lots of money. He goes out and sells everything he has for a fine pearl. That sounds a lot like Jesus. Sells everything he has for a fine pearl. He then decides to go fishing, puts the pearl in his hat, gets on the boat. Wind comes, knocks the, the hat off his head. The pearl goes into the sea. A fish eats the, the pearl. Yosef goes fishing. He catches the fish, cuts the fish open. Inside is the pearl. The rabbis say, if you honor Sabbath, if you keep Sabbath, Sabbath will keep you. That's the moral of that story. I'm unconvinced. Maybe, maybe. Um, Jesus, did you know that Jesus four times will quote Aesop's fables? So he's, he does this. He, Jesus quotes the contemporaries of his day. He does this. I'm not convinced. Um, uh, they, uh, that's my leading theory. Uh, the other theory maybe is that this story is connected to Jonah. Uh, Jesus will say that he's going to die and come back in three days. That's the story before this, which he'll later refer to as the sign of Jonah. Uh, Jonah's a story about a fish, a uh, fish. Maybe it's connected. I'm not fully convinced. Is that helpful? <laughs> I just worked hard. I got to give you my, my work. Uh, so this is like going to your mechanic and being like, car's acting funny. He's like, okay, let's look at it. Take apart the, I, you know, I took apart the transmission and there's nothing in it. Then I took apart the engine and there's nothing wrong with the engine that I can find. Then I took apart the, whatever the third part of a car is. <laughs> There's nothing there. But I'm not convinced that it's not the transmission or the engine or the other thing. Like, I'm not convinced. Here's your bill. Like, if you got that, you'd be like, that's, not, that's a bad deal. That's a bad deal. Um, this, like, I don't know. I don't understand. What to, I don't know what to do with the story. I was expecting to go in and be like, okay, this one's going to blow my mind. In fact, I'm convinced it will when I figure it out. Or you're going to help me figure it out. But I, I, you go, sometimes the moral of the story is sometimes you go in thinking, I'm going to discover something, and you leave... It's like going to the grocery store looking for Jif, and you end up with Peter Pan because Jif has been recalled. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody else really? Like, we finally got Jif back on the shelves. I'll take that risk. Uh, <laughs> Peter Pan. Peter Pan and peanut butter is awful. Peter Pan. <laughs> Do you think Peter Pan is embarrassed? Like, now everybody knows what they... It's kind of like when I was a new pastor and my pastor, my, uh, the pastor I worked under, he'd go on vacation. I felt like every introduction of every sermon should begin with, I'm so sorry you get me. <laughs> anyway, anyway, what's, this, what's my point? Um, what was my point? I don't know what to do with the fishes. <laughs> this will be the one week where the founder of Peter Pan Peanut Butter is going to be here, right? It's going to happen. It's got like four ingredients. How do you mess that up? Oil, sugar. Okay. Uh, now, when you stand back, oh, here's, okay, let's we gotta wrap up. When we stand back from the three stories, when you stand back, you have to ask the question what's the point of all the stories? What's the point? Why does Jesus, what's his, if he's answering the question, who's the greatest, what's the point Jesus is trying to make by laying out this gouging of eyes, the cutting off of hands, telling the fish story, right before, what's the point? 
Turns out there's one more elephant. This is a sneaky elephant. You didn't see the elephant. The elephant was hiding right before your eyes. You didn't see it. I talk about cutting off hands and gouging out eyes, and you say, elephant. But this elephant was right under all of our noses. We didn't see the elephant. I didn't see it either. We didn't see the elephant, but everyone in their culture saw this elephant. Here's the last elephant, and it was in the very first story we read. Jesus takes a kid, a little kid. He puts him on his lap. Well, we didn't say he puts him on his lap, but he pulls the kid into the middle, and he says, that one's the greatest. That is shocking. The word for kid, little child, is the word paidon. Paidon is a neutral word because they believed a kid was an it. A kid was property until it reached a certain age. In fact, about 500 years before Jesus, a philosopher named Aristotle, you've heard of Aristotle. Aristotle came out with what he referred to as his household code. Here's how a civilized Greek should live. Let me just read you a short passage from the household code. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules, the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the ruler of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. And if you keep reading, it goes into even more gross details. Essentially, the way they understood a civilized family should function is the man is in charge. He rules everything. He's in charge of everything. Women are below the man. Below women are the children. But the man is in charge of it all. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is the elephant. The person in your midst that you think is the lowest, the order's flipped. That kid that you think is the lowest, that one is the greatest. He then tells stories of heroes, David and Samson and maybe Jonah, I don't know. And he says, look at these heroes of the faith. You thought they were heroes when they were doing mighty acts, but you know when they were the heroes? Read the text. They were heroes only when they were humbled. You got the order upside down. If you want the full picture of God, the full picture of God comes not when you order your culture through hierarchy and structures that put some high and some low. You want the picture of God. You want to see me. That's what he says here. Look at the lowest. You'll find me there. Paul will take this even further. Paul, one of the first Christian church planners, he'll plant churches. And in the churches he plants, we have his letters, by the way. They're in your Bible. In the churches he plants, he will bury his own household code. Everyone knew Aristotle's household code. He puts his in there. His, read Colossians and Ephesians, You'll find, like chapter four. You'll find the household code. Here's the household code of Paul. Submit to one another. Husbands to your wives. Wives to your husbands. Submit to one another. He actually talks to the women. Aristotle never once talks to the women. He talks to the men. They're in charge. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, we can pull that one way out of context and be like, women, submit to men. Like, that's the wrong read of what Paul's doing. Paul's flipping the culture. They understood it. Paul's saying, as a new family in Jesus, as a new family, here's the new household code. Christ is head. All of us, we submit, we commit to each other. 
he flips the order. Uh, I, every once in a while, I'll hear people say, well, I can't become a Christian because it's just too hierarchical. It's too, yeah, maybe we've messed that up. But understand that the, the reason we understand that the hierarchy is maybe not the best thing for the world is because we're Christian. Jesus gave us that. The Greeks gave us the top-down thing. The Romans gave us the top-down thing. The reason we can now, so the most cynical, skeptical people in our world against Christianity are using Christian arguments to call out Christians. We should hear them because many, many times they're wrong. But they're using Christian, Jesus was the one who said men and women are equal. Paul is the first person in human record that we can find in his letter to the Galatians where he'll say men and women are, there is no longer male nor female, we're all one in Christ. First person to argue for equality. Uh, summon, I guess to sum it up, uh, humility matters. Jesus elevates the child. Now, here's where the tension gets turned up. When you elevate the lowest, those on, it doesn't mean those on the top necessarily have to be lowered, but often those on the top see it as a threat. And these religious leaders begin to see what Jesus is saying, and they're saying if more people think that what he's saying is right, it's going to lead to trouble. Because if they think that they're as good as us, well, they might want our seat. We have to kill him. We'll pick up the story there next week. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, um, in the parts of your scripture where we assume we know it, Lord, would you remind us again that you are here to teach us deeper truths? Uh, Lord, in the parts of our lives where we think we've settled, we've, we've got enough, we understand enough. Lord, would you remind us that you are still here to breathe new life into them? And then, Lord, for all those in our world who we walk by, uh, Lord, for all those in my world that I, um, I think uh, in the depths of my heart that I may be better than them, Lord, would you remind us that you have promised us that your face is to be seen in the lowest. Help us to see you, Jesus. Help us to look. Uh, Lord, I pray for everyone here who right now feels humbled. Something in their lives has fallen apart. Something is hurting. Uh, Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning who right now feels like they have zero value. Lord, would you remind them of their infinite worth? Jesus, we pray this in your beautiful name. And everybody said... As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.